We're uh, starting a new series this morning on the book of Revelation, and uh, I want to invite you to give your attention to the reading of God's word. Revelation chapter 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his, to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of kings on earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, Write what you see in a book, and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands, And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead, but he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last, and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray together. Almighty God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, help us to understand your word. Uh, You have given it to us uh, for our good, and so, Lord, we need your help in discerning its meaning and seeing its application to our lives. So that is what we ask, and we ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen. Whew. All right. Uh, we got to intro this book, uh, which is always a challenge in any series, but uh, especially a challenge in a book like Revelation. And uh, I want to begin by 
making a little observation, and that is that if there's one thing we love in our culture, it's the language of science. Do you notice how often we're putting our experiences in the language of science? You know, when we talk about our behaviors, the way we react, we're like, well, my reptilian brain was operating. And we love to talk about uh, experiments and research and data. But sometimes the language of science isn't up to the task. And let me give you an example. Consider words that may be shared between lovers. Imagine that one lover says to their beloved, when I behold the beauty of your face, my heart skips a beat. Now, some of you are like, ah, just threw up in my mouth a little bit. That's so cheesy. Well, I don't know. Make up whatever line you want to hear. If your lover was saying that to you, it probably wouldn't sound cheesy. But now, imagine trying to put that in the language of science in order to improve it. When light emanating from your physical mass strikes my ocular nerve, it causes an increase in my cardiac cycle. Something is lost in translation, is it not? It may be accurate that this is what is happening at a biological or chemical level, but the language of science isn't up for the job. And this is really important to recognize. Do you remember that uh, movie Contact from like late 90s? They're starring Jodie Foster and Matthew McConaughey. And uh, they've discovered these specs for this machine that will serve as a portal to other parts of the universe. And they're like, we might discover there's intelligent life. Somebody sent something to us. But Jodie Foster is this scientist, and she's highly skeptical. And uh, she's an atheist. And Matthew McConaughey plays this weird, you know, prophet-like believer in God. And it's kind of a strange, weird movie. But there's this scene that I'll never forget, and that is... When Jodie Foster actually gets in the machine and travels to the other side of the universe and she's seeing the glory and the beauty of what is out there, she begins to cry and she says, they should have sent a poet. They should have sent a poet, not a scientist. Because sometimes we need an artist to tell us the truth. Jess just said amen, by the way. Uh, We're starting a series on the book of Revelation today, and this is why I'm going into this. Richard Bauckham, uh, one of the great New Testament scholars of, of, of our day, said that Revelation is astonishingly meticulous literary artistry. And I think that's true. And we want to give ourselves to its language to see what God has to say to us and the significance that it has for our lives. Now, to be fair, some of us are already obsessed with this book. And you've been studying it for year, years for years, and you are, you're, you're waiting for me to hit the landmines. Right? You're, you're going you're to give it to me, right? Because you, you've got this down. And we've obsessed over it. And by the way, if you want to do something fun, just go Google the crazy history of interpretations of the book of Revelation. I remember you know, when I was in high school and just became a Christian, you know, that there were people trying to map the book of Revelation onto the Iraqi war of the early 90s, you know, and like, oh, the locusts are the helicopters, the Black Hawk helicopters, and, you know, all this kind of stuff. Uh, you, you may notice that, that recently both Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton have been identified as the beast of Revelation, whose number is 666. And uh, this is why G.K. Chesterton said... Uh, 100 years ago, uh, that St. John, the author of Revelation, has seen nothing wilder 
than one of his own commentators. So we have to take that into account, right? But others of us, we're not obsessed with this book. We're actually quite intimidated by it. It it feels so bizarre and incomprehensible. There's just a lamb, there's a lion, there's horses, there's dragons, there's seals and trumpets and bowls. There's monsters coming out of the sea, right? There's uh, Babylon the harlot. And, and you're like, I can't understand this. And there's so much disagreement about what it means. So you tend to neglect it and shy away from it. Now, here's what I want to do this morning. And again, this is just a warm up for our series. I want to introduce this book by asking four questions. I want to ask, why do we need it? I want to ask, what is it? And then how should we read it? And how will it actually help us? So let's start first with why we need this book. Now, if you'll notice, right from the get-go, it begins with a blessing. Blessed is the one who reads aloud this, this book in the public assembly. By the way, Rachel Stevener, you just got a special blessing today, reading this out loud. And it it ends talking about the blessing for all who hear it and keep it. But it also ends with a warning about paying close attention to this book. There's a special blessing promised to those who hear it and take it to heart. And there's a special warning for those who would ignore it. And that signals that something significant and vital to the Christian life is contained here. Now, Revelation was written to a beleaguered and battered community. The church was under duress. It's the post-resurrection community. And it was experiencing trouble within spiritual complacency. And we'll talk about that as we move into talking about the seven letters in chapters 2 through 3. But it was also facing trouble from without. Persecution. The church was under duress. It was struggling to survive the storm, which seemed to be on the verge of crashing down on their heads. And uh, I don't know how much you know about the early centuries of Christianity, but there were some pretty brutal episodes and seasons. A friend of mine told me about a meme that he once saw. And uh, you know a meme? It's a photo with a caption. And uh, this, this meme was a, a picture of the Roman Colosseum. And it was from the ground, and you saw this big lion, and behind that lion, another lion. And then right under them, you see huddled a group of people. And you know, these are Christians. And the caption read, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. (laughs) The, The people who received this book, the seven churches that John mentions here, they lived in a world under Roman rule. And we don't know the exact date of when it was written, but we know it was sometime in the latter part of the first century. And some of the things that we know happened in the first century, for example, under Nero's reign, uh, who who was crazy and blamed the Christians uh, for the great fire, he impaled Christians for their faith. He put tar on them and lit them on fire and used them as torches in his garden. By some accounts, Christians were tied to wild animals by their wrists and by their ankles and pulled apart. This is the conditions under which Christians lived at times in the first century. Is this your idea of a wonderful life? Wonderful plan for your life. What resources do you give people 
in that kind of context to help them keep going. John tells us that he is writing from an island called Patmos. Patmos was where Rome would send its troublemakers. And he's in exile on account of faithfulness to Jesus. But this is how he identifies himself, IDs himself in verse 9. I'm your brother and partner in all the same stuff that you're going through. In the tribulation. And by the way, that doesn't mean some end time spooky moment. Okay? We can talk about the great tribulation and texts that talk about that. But John is talking about the normal Christian life for people who are living in the first century. And he's saying, I'm in this tribulation and so are you. And remember, Jesus told us, you will have tribulation in this world, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Revelation is written to help God's people endure. Right? It's written to a spe- by a specific person at a specific time in a specific setting for specific people. The seven churches in the province of Asia, which is, by, by the way, what we would now call uh, the Western Seaboard of Turkey. And, uh, it, but it's not just written to them. It is written for the whole church. Because seven, as we will see, is the number of completeness. And how John begins is that Jesus gave this revelation to be distributed to all his servants. wasn't written directly to us, but it is written for us. And it is a book that is intended to sustain God's people in even the most unimaginable conditions. And you know what? It did. That's a historical fact when you look at the first three centuries of the early church. And if it can do that for them, it can do that for us. This is why we need it. Now, there's a story that I've heard uh, more than once uh, about a group of seminarians, people studying uh, in seminary to be pastors. And uh, every Friday they would play basketball at this uh, gym nearby. And there was this custodian who was kind enough to open up the gym so that they could play. And so every time they went to play, they noticed the custodian would sit over in the corner and he was reading the Bible. And so the seminarians, uh, you know, did what seminarians do when they're playing. They ignored him for weeks, right? <laughs> Great training for pastorhood. But uh, then one day, one of them goes up to this custodian and says, hey, what, are, what are you reading? I see you reading all the time. And he said, I'm reading the book of Revelation. And the seminarian's like, oh, <laughs> like, who can make sense of that book? No one understands. And the custodian said, I think I actually get it. And the seminarian says, what is it about then? And he says, I think it's telling us Jesus is going to win. And there may be no better summary of the book of Revelation than this. And we need to hear it. Don't lose sight of its main message. Jesus wins. Because that is what will sustain you in even the most unimaginable conditions. Now, that's why we need it. But, But what is it? What is this strange, fantastic, and wild book? And here's what's interesting is Revelation identifies itself, IDs itself in three ways. As a letter, as a prophecy, and as an apocalypse. Okay? As a letter, right, it doesn't just contain letters, although it does. The whole thing is intended as a letter for circulation amongst those churches. And as a letter, it comes from the pen of a pastor. John is the pastor 
of these congregations from afar, he writes first and foremost with a pastoral heart for God's people. And we don't want to lose sight of that as we read this. But it also IDs itself as a prophecy. Verse 3. It's described as the words of this prophecy. Now, you and I, when we hear prophecy, we tend to think of, you know, simply prediction. I call it the Nostradamus model of prophecy. It's like we're looking for predictions of the future. But biblically, the office of prophet was way richer and fuller than that. And didn't it involve simply prediction? It involved declaration. Prophets declared God's truth to God's people, and they did so to call for a response at that very moment. Not just to say, hey, wait around, you know, a couple of millennia and see if you can decipher the code. It's a prophecy, which is a declaration of God's truth to God's people. But finally, it's an apocalypse. You know the word that's translated here in verse 1, the revelation of of Jesus Christ is the Greek word apocalypsis. Okay, and when we hear apocalypse, we tend to think disaster. Something terrible is about to happen. But that's that's not how a first century listener would have would have received that, at least not at first. The word meant unveiling, revealing what was previously hidden. And I don't know if you um, are into those home makeover shows. Uh, you watch the, the shows where they go into somebody's house and they like redo everything. And of course, they put that big screen up in front of it. And the couple's all, you know, they're waiting to, to see what, wh- what's this going to be. And then they unveil it and they go in and everybody lives happily ever after, right? And of course, that, that's, that's in many ways an idea of, uh, that's starting to approach what's happening in the book of Revelation, but it's more like you're invited back behind the scenes to see what is happening right now and where it's all headed. God is pulling back the curtain and inviting John to see behind the scenes. Now, here's something that we'll greatly misunderstand if we don't understand a biblical conception of heaven and earth. We talked about this a little bit in our series on the Lord's Prayer about our Father in heaven. Heaven is not... You know, some zip code far off at the end of the universe. It's God's dimension. And N.T. Wright uh, put it like this, and I think this is really helpful. The final Christian hope is that the two dimensions, heaven and earth, at present separated by a veil of invisibility caused by human rebellion, will one day be united together so that there will be a new heaven's and a new earth. Revelation is the veil being lifted to see not only future realities, but present ones too. And what that means for us is it's not just about the end of history. It's about all of history from the vantage point of how it ends. Jesus wins. But not even just how it ends, how it is right now even though it's hidden from our eyes. Jesus unveils the truth of past, present, and future. Just because you don't see it with your physical eyes doesn't mean it isn't true. You might not have the right lens. You know, centuries ago, people would laugh at the idea that there's these microscopic organisms that are actually causing our sickness. And you know why? Because they didn't have the right lens to see it. What does a microscope do? A microscope takes things that are very, very small 
and imperceptible to the human eye and allows you to see them. What does a telescope do? It allows you to see things that are very, very far away. Revelation is a lens through which we can see a greater reality. The reality of what God is up to in and through Jesus right now and where this is headed and how it will end. Apocalypse is used several times in the New Testament. And this is, this is interesting. Jesus uses it in Matthew 11. He also uses it in Matthew 16. Paul uses it in Galatians 1. And every time it is about the unveiling of the beauty and glory of Jesus. And how all of life begins to look so different in that light. Things that we thought were so important and lovely and stable are often exposed as shallow and ugly and fleeting. And John says, I'm given this revelation to unveil before you things that must soon take place. That's a, that's a common phrase in the New Testament, by the way. Paul ends Romans with saying, God's going to soon crush Satan under your feet. James encourages us when we're suffering uh, because the Lord is at hand and the judge is standing at the door. Peter admonished patience and watchfulness and prayer because the end of all things is right here, right now. And you get this sense that in the New Testament, we are to live all of life between Christ's resurrection and Christ's return with a readiness, an anticipation, an expectation that it's right there at the door, even as we experience intense opposition. Revelation isn't given so that we can guess when Jesus will return. It's given so that we can endure while we wait. That's what it is. It's a letter. It's a prophecy. It's an apocalypse. John is given a tour, a guided tour through a bunch of visions, offered different vantage points from the heavenly throne room to out in an earthly wilderness to onto a high mountain. And he's laboring to put into words what he saw. But here's something uh, interesting. Eugene Peterson, uh, the late Eugene Peterson said, you know, there's really nothing new in Revelation. But there's a new way to say it. The images and the symbols grab hold of our hearts in fresh and invigorating ways. Because sometimes the the language of science isn't up for the job. So that's what Revelation is. Now, how do we read it? You know, genre identification is really important because the genre of the literature determines your reading strategy. And we all, we all just kind of know this intuitively. In general, like, you got a fairy tale, you got a legal document, you got a personal letter or email from a friend. You don't read them all the same way. Or you shouldn't. And in the Bible, it's no different. God has given us historical accounts He's given us law codes. He's given us proverbs. He's given us psalms. He's given us epistles. And you don't read them all the same way. Revelation is apocalyptic literature. And there was a whole lot of this in the centuries before and after John that we can go back and we can read, and it fits in this genre of literature. But more importantly, the Old Testament contains apocalyptic literature. You see it in Daniel, you see it in Isaiah. Uh, You see it in Ezekiel, you see it in Zechariah. It has a number of unique features, right? People are often portrayed in the likeness of animals. You're going to see that. Historical events are often represented in in, in form of natural phenomena, earthquakes, right? Sun going dark. Colors and numbers have meanings, all this kind of stuff. But maybe most importantly, 
Apocalyptic literature does two things. It gets behind the veil so that we see the present reality in light of the unseen realities of the future. And we see the present reality in light of the unseen realities of the present. If apocalypse means unveiling, you're getting behind the scenes, getting to glimpse reality from a different vantage point than maybe you normally do. It's like a backstage pass. And you see the spiritual battle behind the scenes between the lamb and the dragon, the holy city in Babylon. The curtain is drawn back and we're ushered in to see that the powers of this world, as Nancy Guthrie put it, will be overthrown and replaced by the kingdom of God. That's exactly what Revelation says in 1115. The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdom of our Lord and his Christ. Now, what that means for us and how we read it is this. Revelation is rich with symbolism. That's not saying it's not real or isn't true. Metaphorical language often works better to convey truth. Think about Jesus' own words. He says, I am the door, right? That does not mean he was made of mahogany and he had a brass belly button as a doorknob, okay? It's not literal, but it is true. And that's important to recognize. Apocalyptic literature traffics in the language of dreams and visions and symbolic numbers and bizarre creatures. And it does this because it has a way of cutting through our complacency and disrupting the way that we normally organize our understanding of the world. Sometimes it tells us exactly what the symbols mean. We're told in this passage that the lampstands, John saw, were the churches that John was to write to. Verse 20. We're told later that the white linen represents the righteous acts of the saints in 19.8. We're told that the ancient serpent is the devil in, in, in Revelation 20 verse 2. But often it doesn't spell it out for us this way. Yet it's steeped in the symbols of the social and political and cultural and religious world of the first century. And more importantly, of the Old Testament. There's over 500 quotations or allusions to the Old Testament in the book of Revelation. John is painting in the language of the Hebrew scriptures. You'll see that the number seven is really important. You can actually use it to organize the whole book. The seven churches, the seven seals, the seven trumpets, the seven signs, seven bowls, seven final messages of judgment, seven last things. I mean, we could spend all day on that, right? But Revelation is rich with symbolism. Here's another thing. It isn't chronological. It's not what happens next in history. It's what John saw next. These scenes aren't given in the order that they happen historically, like What happens in chapter 19 comes after what happens in chapter 15. What happens in chapter 15 comes after what happens in chapter 6. doesn't work that way. Many times you think you're coming to a vision of the end of history, and you are. But then it doubles back and gives another series of images leading up to the end. does this six or seven times. And you can see the parallels as we go through it. It's like it's retracing its steps, but it's using different camera angles so that we can get a fuller picture. And over and over again, it's highlighting the experience of God's people between Christ's resurrection and Christ's return. And here's the third thing. It celebrates the victory of God. Conflict between God and Satan, the lamb and the dragon, the church and the world, the bride and the harlot, the holy city Jerusalem and the great city Babylon. And guess what? Jesus wins every time. 
And that brings us to the last thing about how we read this, which is the most important. Revelation focuses on Jesus Christ. He's its grand theme. Now notice, in the, in the first eight verses, we get allusions to the entire saving career of Jesus. And therefore the essence of the gospel. We get some of his nicknames. Faithful witness. That's his, that describes his life. Firstborn from the dead. That describes his death and resurrection. Ruler of kings on earth. That describes his ascension. Or put it this way, as faithful witness, he tells us the truth about ourselves and about our world, about the future, about everything. As firstborn from the dead, he is the first to rise, but he's not the last. He's actually the first fruits of a resurrection harvest. God's people need to hear this. As ruler of the kings of the earth, he reigns over all governments and ideologies and philosophies. Their days are numbered. And then John immediately moves into a doxology in verse 5 to Jesus. To him who loved us. Not sentimentally, but sacrificially. Because he freed us from our sins by his blood. And he has made us a kingdom. Like the kingdom of Israel in the Old Testament. He has appointed us as priests. Bridge builders out in the world. And he will one day come again to judge and to save. This language is just filled with echoes from Daniel 7 and Zechariah 12. Every knee is going to bow in heaven and on earth. Oppressive regimes, false teachers, all evil. It's going to come to an end. This book is meant to be read with a focus on Jesus. It's a disclosure from Jesus. It's about Jesus. It's through his servant John. It's to the churches. And it has God Almighty, God the Father's seal of approval, the one who is and who was and who is to come, verse 8, revealing the divine perspective concerning the work of his Son. Now, how does this help us? This is how. It gives us a remarkable vision of Jesus. A church on the edge of being laid to waste needs more than moral exhortation or inspiring stories. It needs to see the risen Christ. And do you know what we are told here? We are told that the risen Christ is present with his church right now. Verses 9 through 20. One Sunday, while John is in exile, he's caught up in the spirit and he's given a vision. His senses are overwhelmed. And he's told to write this down and send it to the churches. And he turns around to see seven golden lampstands. Which verse 20 tells us is the seven churches, which represents all the church. And right in the middle is one like a son of man. It's a technical term. It was one of Jesus' favorite ways of IDing himself in the Gospels. And it comes from the book of Daniel. Hear this from Daniel. I saw in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days. And was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom. That all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion. Which shall not pass away. And his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. The one who rules and reigns over everything. Is right here in the middle of his church. He's not off at a distance. He's not on vacation. He's right here, right now with us. He's got a long robe on. 
the robe of the high priest. Right? Jesus, as Hebrews tell us, is one who is able to sympathize with our weaknesses because he is our great high priest who is tempted in every way, yet he never once sinned. And what is his sacrifice? We've already heard it. It's himself. We are freed from our sins by his blood. The one who is our great high priest is right here in the middle of his church. There's a golden sash around his chest. He's a king. To people who are suffering greatly under oppression, this was great news. Rome isn't ultimately in charge. Jesus is. The one who is our glorious and victorious king is right here in the middle of his church. Hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. It's a symbol of eternal wisdom. It goes back to Daniel 7. And guess what? In Daniel 7, it was the ancient of days who had this white woolly hair. But now the Son of Man, Jesus the risen Christ, is said to have it. He shares in the character and being of God, including his wisdom and knowledge. The one who knows everything and always knows what to do and has eternal wisdom is right here in the middle of his church. His eyes were like flames of fire. Fire purifies. Jesus doesn't just look at us. He looks through us. And he burns away. What is displeasing to him. The one who sees us and sees through us and purifies us is right here in the middle of his church. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. Bronze is something incredibly durable. The foundation of Jesus' power has been tested by fire and will endure forever. The one who has eternal power is right here in the middle of the church. Are you getting it yet? Are you starting to get it? His voice was like the roar of many waters. It's like the thunder of Niagara Falls drowning out other voices. In his right hand, he held seven stars, which were told of the seven angels of the churches. He's holding in his hand the one responsible for the care of the church. He's got it. He's got it. From his mouth comes a sharp two-edged sword, not a fencer's blade, right? but a a tongue-shaped sword that's used for close-up conflict. An image used three other times in the book of Revelation to describe Jesus' words of judgment. Meaning his words penetrate and they cut both ways. They convict and they comfort. They judge and they save. They condemn evil and they deliver his people. And his face was like the sun shining in full strength. Echoing the ironic benediction from the book of Numbers. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The face that we so desperately long to see, the favor we so greatly need, is found in the person, in the work, in the face of Jesus Christ. Do you feel the weight of these words and images? We behold the glory of God in the face of our risen Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And he is right here in the middle of his church. Look, Jesus stands in the midst of local churches. Don't miss the point. Wherever you are spiritually, if you want to know Jesus, you have to direct him with the fact that he's tethered himself to his church. Local churches. And by the way, not just Grace Presbyterian Church. Let's be very clear. But all churches who hold to the apostolic gospel, imperfect communities... That are being pruned and shaped by the presence of the risen Lord. This wasn't the first time that John caught a glimpse of God's glory in the person of Jesus. If you go back to Matthew 17, the Mount of Transfiguration, Peter, James, and John have that moment of unveiling. And it says his face shone like the sun. 
And Peter, James, and John fell on their faces and were terrified. Same thing happens here. John falls at his feet like a dead man. Why? Because it's overwhelming to know you're in the presence of the God of the universe. But you know what Jesus does? He says he reaches out and he touches John. And he has some tender words for him and for us. Don't be afraid. You know, that tells us something really important about these revelations John received. They are not given to frighten us. Not if we trust him. They are given to comfort us and fortify us. Jesus is with us and he will win. He shares the eternity of God. I'm the first and last. He's the living one because he died and he was raised. He is both the eternal one and the resurrected one. And that means that even death, even death, has lost its final terror. Revelation is a call to endurance, to hold fast to the truth, to resist the devil, to obey the commandments of God, to trust in the presence and the promises and the victory of Jesus. Jesus, the risen one and eternal one, is right here in our midst. Let me break that down. He's in the midst of your tears and your sorrows. He's in the midst of your doubts and your confusions. He's in the midst of your weakness and your sufferings. He's cleansing us from our sins and fortifying us for faithfulness. He's with us right here, right now. The one who reigns speaks. If I could say it in a simple way, revelation is given to fortify Christians, not satisfy all curiosities. You know, we've used a phrase here that we need to be building sturdy Christians. Well, the book of Revelation is a book that is designed for that. When your heart is captured by the risen Christ, you begin to become less intimidated of what people think of you. You begin to become less enamored with the promises of wealth and comfort and pleasure and security that are just peddled all the time. You become less attracted to alternative ways of doing life. Our hearts are always feeding on things. We feed on regret for our past. We feed on frustration and anger and bitterness in our present. We feed on fear about the future, but God wants you to feed on Christ. And that is what revelation is for. It's to fill your heart and mind with the beauty and the glory of Jesus in a way that changes us and enables us to endure. That's what it means to hear it and keep it. And in doing it, will be blessed. Now I want to close with this. It's a quote from Nancy Guthrie's book. Highly recommend it. And uh, it has an awesome cadence to it. And I wish I was a better speaker and could do justice to this. But this is what she says the book of Revelation shows us. The book of Revelation shows us the opposition we can expect to escalate. The endurance we need to cultivate. The judgment we will celebrate. The victory in which we will participate. The enemy Jesus will annihilate. The sorrow he will alleviate. The creation he will regenerate. The marriage he will consummate. And the home we can anticipate sharing with him forever. That's good news. And we all have a tendency to say in our hearts, I like to think of God as, and Revelation like smacks you in the face with all its imagery and it says, he's so much better than that. He's more powerful than any empire or any movement or any government or any ideology or any market forces. And he loves more than any parent or any spouse or any therapist or any pastor or any friend. 
And what I'm inviting us to do is to give ourselves to the wild and fantastic imagery of the book of Revelation and let it grab us by the heart and fill us with a vision of our ruling and reigning Lord. Let's pray together. God Almighty, uh, we were humbled before your word, what seems so strange and bizarre and maybe even distant and irrelevant you have used to sustain your people in unimaginable conditions. And you say we need this. So Lord, would you begin to go to work on us? Whether we're here and we've once believed and not sure we believe anymore, or whether we've never believed and we want to figure out what we believe, or whether we're just battered and beleaguered in heart right now, would you fill us? Would you feed us with this vision of the beauty and the glory of our ruling and reigning Jesus Christ. We ask this in his name. Amen.